0: their paths crossed like two hot wires we are just
1: about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet
0: that's bonnie i'm sorry i was looking for maude
1: everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves you can't let the world judge you too much that woman she took my car this
0: is bonnie and maude the film podcast with xenia yarosh and eleanor kagan
2: Hey, this is Bonnie and Maude. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yarosh. This is the Femcentric centric Film Podcast, coming to you from the studio apartment. And we just saw Maleficent, and we are going to unpack the Disney origin story of the
0: evil villain from The Sleeping Beauty Myth. I'm going to start by saying that I was really not looking forward to watching this film. And I'm incredibly relieved by how much I did not hate it. All right, well, we will get into our
2: opinions of the film shortly. But first, let's introduce our lovely guest. Sophie Bushwick is joining us today. Hey, Sophie. Hey. Sophie is a science writer. um, And also, along with her pal Amy Craft, had a podcast called Tabled Fables, which uh, was all about fairy tales and digging into their origins. Um, It is on hiatus for the moment, as I understand. Yeah. But you are a bit of a fairy tale Aficionado, some like me may say expert because you constantly <laughs> blow me away with your uh, deep knowledge of fairy tales. So- I wouldn't call
1: myself an expert. I feel like the experts are the people who like work at universities and study folktales for a living and go to conferences. Like they've got like a Cinderella conference.
0: What I know, yeah. but you're a huge enthusiast, and even the fact that you know about these conferences I think, <laughs> qualifies you to. Uh,
1: give us a lot of insight on this topic. I, I started getting really into fairy tales when I took a class on children's literature, senior year of college, and we started out the, the class talking about fairy tales. And one of the things we did was read a bunch of different versions of one story and talk about how they were related, and then do the same thing for a bunch of different versions of another story. And what I really loved about that is that fairy tales are very different dense in that there's a lot of symbolism and themes and historical information all packed into a very short seemingly simple package and that's the great thing about fairy tales is you can take a single story that's a few pages long and unpack and pull out all of this meaning about gender norms and uh industry, and I also like how you can take one story and as you follow it through time, you can see what the intentions of the people who wrote it down were. Are they trying to entertain? Are they trying to, and where are they doing so? Are they entertaining in a French salon? Or are they entertaining in a peasant's hut around the fire where a bunch of different people want to participate? Or are they trying to teach a moral lesson to young women? Or are they trying to sell a cartoon animated movie? (laughs) So you see how the the writer's intentions always betray themselves in fairy tales. And I think that's awesome. One of the things that I was reminded
0: of, um, when doing research about this story and film was, um, fairy tales were often a way of women teaching younger women
1: something, I think of fairy tales as often they were a woman's medium because you think when you picture someone telling a story, you pick. I picture people sitting around a big fireplace and this sort of older woman, you know, talking to the young children around her to entertain it's them. Often mothers, yeah, mothers telling their children. their children, yeah, or uh, if if you're if you're like, you're working in the seamstress industry, and you're women, you might all stay in one room working on your looms, or your spinning wheels. I mean, you can (laughs) spin tails as well as spinning fabric. Spinning is a theme that comes up in in fairy tales, and sort of the sewing. Sewing comes up a lot in fairy tales. Sewing and things related to textiles. So, like, uh, there's this very early version of Red Riding Hood where she's, you can see parallels to the seamstress industry because she's in the woods with the wolf, and the wolf says, "Will you take the path of needles or the path of pins. So mm. the path of pins is like you'd be an apprentice, you'd be helping someone else out. But if you're taking the path of needles, it's like you want to be like the the head honcho seamstress, you want to be the one who actually sews. Huh. And then in Sleeping Beauty, you've got the symbolism of spindles and spinning flax. You've also got spinning and rumpelstiltskin. So you see that, that fabric and sewing is very important in these. Often the protagonists of these stories are women. Not always. You've got a lot of male protagonists, but Considering how many, say, novels and, like, great literature, works of literature are about men, I think when you compare that to fairy tales, fairy tales have a lot of female protagonists. Even if the protagonists don't do a lot... They're at the center of the action. They're at the center of the action, yes. And how often are the villains women as well? Often. Especially in Disney adaptations. <laughs> hmm. There's There's a lot of... The thing is that there's a lot of stories about mothers-slash-stepmother figures hurting their children both male and
0: female. I don't remember if I talked about this when we spoke about Frozen but I think until I was fairly I don't know maybe seven or eight I thought stepmother was like a bad word (laughs) just because it's like it's always
1: like they're always always evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah I well I think there's a long tradition of stories where mother figures hurt people and Especially in later adaptations, I think storytellers were a little bit uncomfortable with that, and they made them stepmothers. It's more acceptable to have a stepmother be cruel to her, uh, the unwanted stepchild, than she would be to her own descendants. Hmm. Yeah, that is a lot darker. Where it's a mother hurting her own child. Yeah, I think there's some versions of stories like Snow White. I, I, I'm not positive, but I'm, I think there's there's versions where it's actually her mother and not her stepmother hmm. who's jealous of her beauty.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Um, So we're going to unpack a lot about heroes and villains today in this episode, Um, a lot about motherhood and stepmotherhood. We watched Maleficent. I think we have a lot of feelings about it. I have a lot of feelings about it. We uh, traveled from the theater back to the studio apartment not saying a word to each other about the movie and it was really hard because I was like brimming over with emotions. Um, But before we get into it, um, we just want to remind you guys about the plot of uh, Sleeping Beauty and of Maleficent. And um, I think it goes without saying that there will be spoilers. So if you have not seen Maleficent, we recommend um, going to see it before listening to this, or if you just don't care, listen on, it's your call. So Maleficent is, of course, a villain origin story for Maleficent, who is the, for all intents and purposes, queen, protector of this fairyland called the Moors. There is another kingdom that is the human kingdom, and humans and fairies are not supposed to kind of traverse into one another's worlds. Um, One boy does come into the fairy world. He and Maleficent have a romance. They share what is called true love's kiss, which is a phrase we've heard before and a phrase I'm sure we will discuss. But then he leaves her and goes back to the humans. Uh, Years later, he grows up, and there is a decree from the king that whoever vanquishes Maleficent for having defeated the king's army when they tried to invade the fairy land gets to be the successor to the crown. And so this boy, Stefan, goes back to Maleficent, plays on her trust with him, drugs her, and slices off her wings, um, and then returns them to the king. Thus, he is made king. So Maleficent is horrified. Obviously, she had these big, beautiful, lustrous wings that she kind of zoomed around the fairyland uh, sort of free, and now her, her power has been taken from her. So, fast forward, Stefan has a daughter, Aurora, and in her christening, uh, Maleficent comes, she gives her the famous Sleeping Beauty curse, which is that on her 16th birthday, she will prick her finger on a spinning wheel and fall into a death sleep. And everyone starts freaking out, and Maleficent says, okay, okay, fine. There's one thing that can break the death sleep, and that is true love's kiss. So the movie goes from there. There is, uh, you know, a... Frozen-esque twist at the end of this movie, which we will get into momentarily, but that is the setup for this film. is um, As Aurora grows up, they, she is sent away from the castle, and Maleficent is sort of keeping watch on her, and, you know, maternally things happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you guys think of this movie? It's a PG movie for kids. I'll just throw that out there, too. Oh, and, you know... Another thing that you should be aware of going into this episode is um, we will be discussing rape. There are some really uncomfortable scenes of violence in this of film. A metaphoric rape, not literal. But it's something that we will be discussing, so I just want
0: to put that out there. Anyway, back to my question. What did you guys think about this movie? I recently rewatched the classic 1959 cartoon version of the Disney Sleeping Beauty. And there were just so many things that frustrated me about it that it was a relief that Maleficent, the film, answered and filled in the gaps. Like, I was annoyed with the fairies, and in Maleficent, um, we see just how loopy and not smart they are. And... um, The three fairies that are tasked with raising Aurora. Exactly. Um, And then yeah, in Sleeping Beauty, I was wondering why she was so evil. And Maleficent answered that.
1: I appreciated that. I thought it was very dark, literally dark. I felt like it was, things were always happening at night. A lot of scenes were set at night that could just as well have been set in the day, but then they would be too damn happy. And (laughs) I I don't know. That that also makes for cheaper special effects. Ah, good point. I mean, but also I'm not a huge fan of Villain origin stories. I like. I like evil villains. I like, like Richard the Third. I mean, we don't. If, if they made Richard the Third now, they'd show him like growing up and how his mom didn't really love him, and that's why he <laughs> turned evil. I like starting with evil Richard and going from there. <laughs> not. Not this. Not like why. Not why. Not why they become evil. Well, I think they should have a motivation. Like you have a good point. Maleficent's just like evil for evil's sake in the original version, and it doesn't really make sense why. But and I she's think, really set on it. Like she keeps being evil. It's not just like a one time incident. She just Right. The character the version of the character that appears in fairy tale versions isn't that driven. I mean, like Maleficent's following Aurora throughout her life trying to put this curse on her. And in the in the fairy tale, that the evil cursing fairy curses the baby at the beginning and then books it. Doesn't come up <laughs> ever again in the story. It's interesting to explain why she was so fixated on this, which mm-hmm. they didn't do in the original. But at the same time, I'm, I'm just not as interested. I don't know. I feel like most villain origin stories are, oh, this villain was a really nice person, and something traumatic happened, and then they became an evil person.
2: Totally. That's I mean, that's any superhero origin story. And it tends to be if it's a man or a woman, they are orphaned as a child, and that is the traumatic event or one of the traumatic events that befalls them. And if it's a woman more often than not, there is some sort of scene of... Loss of of, innocence. Yeah, there is some sort of scene of sexual... And loss of innocence comes usually through sexual violence. And I hate that. That is really bothersome to me, that a woman can only become powerful once this horrible thing happens to her, which... But she was powerful before that. She was, but she kind of was given a mission. Energized. Motivated. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and Maleficent's whole... Origin, the whole reason she is cursing the baby is this revenge plot. So, I mean, there's so many different levels of revenge that happen in Maleficent. First, the king wants revenge on Maleficent for defeating his army, then, Maleficent wants revenge on Stefan for cutting off her wings, and then, Stefan wants revenge on Maleficent for cursing her child. It's like
0: so many different levels of revenge that just starts to <laughs> cheapen it. I, I'm actually someone who has specifically avoided rape revenge movies. Same. Because I'm just so put off by the concept of women becoming incredibly violent as a result of violence done onto them. But I, I, like, something in my brain put that aside when we were watching this. And I, I was really excited. And I felt empowered d- during many scenes when we saw Angelina Jolie... I was also hoping that we
2: could avoid doing a rape revenge movie on this podcast for a while, just because I think there is some idea out there that those types
0: of stories are empowering to women. No. Um, But they're not at all. They're for male audiences, because most of the time the woman, while killing her attackers, is in underwear or a bikini, so there's still like a sexual element, and it's just... And it, it puts forth this this idea that
2: women are, like, soft and maternal and submissive until this horrible act of violence happens
0: to them, and then they're powerful. Their only power is in violence. It's, like, they can't have power without... Exactly. And And male characters are just powerful. They just
2: are. They don't need a reason to be powerful, whereas female characters do need this reason. And, you know, revenge doesn't make everything better. Yeah, so those stories are really problematic to me, but... I do have to agree that while Maleficent was playing out, um, even though I felt the same way I feel whenever I see sexual violence on screen during the wing removal scene where he drugs her and cuts off her wings, I felt that same like feeling of doom in my chest that I feel whenever I see sexual violence on screen. And then from there, yeah, the movie was really exciting and it was gorgeous
0: and Angelina Jolie was awesome and her cheekbones were even better and like (laughs) i think i was absolutely enchanted by her like i i think she's done a lot of boring roles over the years and i'm always waiting for her to do something more exciting and maybe that was part of it i just wanted her to like be doing things again in movies
2: yeah she i mean she's definitely she's great in this movie and her character does
1: go on to be quite complicated after as a result of this revenge mission. Well, It's not just as a result of the revenge mission. It's as a result of unexpected complications from the revenge mission. It's sort of like you you sort of see her completely bent on revenge and then she softens because Aurora is just so lovable. And then she softens a little more and then she gets to the point where she's like, all right, it was wrong of me to do this to this girl. But at the same time, during that whole time, she isn't really encountering Stefan, the person she's really trying to get at. It's not so much that it's saying that the revenge mission is bad, it's that it's misguided. Like, would this have played out differently if she just cursed Stefan instead of cursing his daughter? Probably. Right? She probably would have just thought, like, this revenge is awesome and I'm happy to see him suffer and I won't turn into this complex maternal figure for his daughter. You know what I mean? Like, it's only because she cursed the wrong person that the revenge mission went awry. Know.
2: Yeah, it went awry and arguably got so much more interesting because as Aurora grows up, Maleficent feels these maternal feelings for her and also kind of has a secret hand in raising her because the three
1: fairies tasked with uh,
2: rearing her are kind of incompetent.
1: They like almost let the baby starve to death because they don't know what to feed it. They can't do regular things like cooking because they're used to using magic, which is also sort of... A takeaway from the original movie where they are very upset at having to do without magic but they make them just terrible they all they do is fight with each other instead of actually getting anything done
0: yeah
2: you're gonna say something
1: oh
0: yeah I just wanted to see um, if that was offensive <laughs> that they're so ditzy and stupid <laughs>
1: I read that kind of as a critique of the original Sleeping Beauty movie because in that movie, they bring her back, the whole plan is bring her back to the castle on her 16th birthday before sunset, even though the curse is going to take place before then. So it's like if they had waited in the woods for one more day, they would have been fine. So <laughs>
0: That this, was really irritating to me in the cartoon. I think I
1: was shouting at the screen during that moment. Yeah. So in this one, they, they explain it by they're supposed to take her back the day after, but they're so ditzy that they lose track of it and they tell her about her identity too soon. She rides off to the palace, and she's there just in time to prick her finger and be cursed. So they're like the bad mommies. Yeah, they're pretty terrible. They're just like really selfish. There's a line towards the end where one of the fairies is is like, Oh, dear Aurora, who we gave our the best years of our lives to. So it's like, that's not true love that they felt for her. That was just...
2: Is a sense of duty. Yeah. A a thin veneer of duty. I mean, but also they don't age at all um, in those like 16 years over which the movie spans.
0: So I figured as fairies, maybe they don't age. um, There was also the moment where Aurora just sort of offhandedly says, I love you, aunties. Even that time you accidentally fed me spiders was okay.
1: they reminded me of the Sanderson sisters in Hocus Pocus, totally. actually. There was the young, hot one. There was the leader, who's always standing in the middle. Who's dressed in red. Yeah, yeah. And then the Kathy Najimi character. <laughs> and as
2: Aurora grows up, she comes to view Maleficent as, in her words, a fairy godmother, which, of course, is one of those fairy tale ubiquitous phrases. Um, Cinderella, I think, is when... Um, there's yeah. peak fairy godmother-ism.
1: At least in the Disney version, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, and then she and Maleficent start hanging out in the fairy kingdom, and it's really sweet.
1: Yeah, I really liked the the relationship that developed between Aurora and Maleficent, but it's, it was sort of what I didn't like as much was there's just a lot of scenes of like, Aurora frolicking with, like, the fairy creatures and Maleficent and her crow sidekick are just sort of, like, sitting next to them watching, which was kind of weird for me.
0: I was really distracted because I kept, like, picturing Elle Fanning just, like, in a blue room reaching out towards things and saying, this is so beautiful (laughs) when there's, like, nothing around her. Like,
1: (laughs) there's so much (laughs) CGI. (laughs) Yeah, and some of it was good and some of it was very bad. Yeah. The fairies were so uncanny valley when they were in fairy form. It Their was, faces
2: were so creepy to look at. Yeah. It was very, very well, creepy. Well, it's,
1: it's directed
0: um, by a first-time director who primarily has worked on special effects up till now. Mm-hmm. Like, he did Alice in Wonderland, the more recent one, and some other very prominently CGI'd movies. That
2: said, I did think a lot of the shots in this movie were beautiful. All the spinning wheels when they're in the dungeon having been burned as a protector against her pricking her finger on one on her 16th birthday was really beautiful the silhouettes that Maleficent is shown in in her like Alexander McQueen-esque crown. <laughs> <drawn, laughs> crown. Um, it's like made with snake skin and leather and oh, oh my yeah.
0: god. She had a
2: lot of different ones. It was really cool. It was really One cool. One for every season. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, you know, they did a lot of great shots of her shown in silhouette and she's always sort of like gazing over her shoulder yeah. a little bit and I her mean, like she, cheekbones are in like full She can do relief. so
0: much with just like a slight raise of the eyebrow. Yeah like angelina jolie in her natural state is like a cgied woman <laughs> like just to like reach those levels of perfection is i don't know yeah. But um, I, I was actually curious if in the original Sleeping Beauty Tales, there's any sort of a follow-up to the whole we must destroy all the spinning wheels thing because I would think it would have a
1: huge economic effect right? on this kingdom. Yeah, when you think at all about it in detail, that's a terrible idea, burning all the spinning wheels. Like, yeah. where else are you going to get cloth with... For 16 years. And no, none of the fairy tales follow it up. I feel like it would be interesting to take a look at this tale from someone who gets their livelihood from spinning whales and say, well, what the hell happens to them yeah. after Ooh. they're all burnt? In some of the earlier fairy tales, they're not particularly thorough at making sure everyone knows to get rid of their spinning wheels because there's always some old woman in a country house who lives, you know, she lives in like a tower in a country house, and she never heard the King's Edict, so she's been sitting there spinning away for God knows how long. She didn't get the tweet. She didn't get the message, yeah. So they weren't great at the whole Banning spinning in the fairy tale version, which is Mm Which explains why there's a, a wheel around for her to prick her finger on. Mm. Whereas in the movie, both movie versions, they destroy the spinning wheels, but then their magic is used to bring them back.
2: And she also, Aurora also falls under this kind of trance that
0: brings her to the spinning wheel
2: to prick her finger both times. Yeah. Maleficent. There's a
0: lot of buildup towards that moment. Like, I mean, that's really the moment you're waiting for the yeah. whole time. Because you know it's going to happen. Or else
1: it wouldn't be called Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. And there's always someone, someone right behind her trying to stop her and unable to, she's just drawn forward inex- mm-hmm. inexorably towards the spinning wheel spinning yeah. wheel of doom. yeah, it is kind of odd that it's
2: just this presence that's bringing her there. for such a pivotal moment to have not really a sound explanation of why she does end up pricking her finger was a little bothersome to me,
1: but I uh, ultimately I can overlook that. in the fairy tale it's a little bit more straightforward. she doesn't know she's cursed. She comes upon an old woman spinning. She's never seen a spinning wheel before. She's like, wow, that's cool. She's not used to using it. She's like, can I try this? So she reaches out for it, and she's clumsy and isn't used to using it, so she pricks her finger. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot better. Yeah, I mean, it actually makes sense. Unlike the whole... I mean, you don't need magic to explain it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's just never seen a spinning wheel before.
2: I know, for a story filled with magic, there's always something that takes it too far, where <laughs> I need like that explanation. I need it to be grounded in something. Um... Were there any other versions of the story, Sophie, where Maleficent tries to reverse her curse? Because that was one thing that actually really surprised me about uh, this film. Maleficent is that as Maleficent gets to know Aurora, she starts to regret the curse and feels so guilty about it that she tries to reverse it, but can't because, I don't know, she's more powerful when she's
0: angry and so she can't break her own curse? I think it's because she specified initially in the initial curse that no power in the world will be able to stop this not even her own
2: that i mean that the way i interpreted that i know i mean i know but the way i interpreted that was that you would think she would be able to break her own curse but she was so much more powerful when she was at her peak revenge anger (laughs) that when she now that she's softened a little bit and is trying to reverse the curse out of love it's like she can't counter her angry self
1: I don't know, I got the impression from like Ksenia said, that like she was when she made the original curse, she said, No power on earth shall undo this curse and it shall last for eternity. And there's flames all around her and it's it's like that was saying, Alright, this is this is it. Even she can't undo it because she said she couldn't. So does that does she try to undo it in any
2: other incarnations of no, this? No, in
1: all the other versions it's like an impulse curse. So there's a bunch of fairies have been invited to this christening, or goddesses, and uh, one of them is offended because of cutlery, actually. So what happens is usually there's, um, there's three or seven or twelve fairies who are invited, and they're provided with beautiful like gold plates and knives and goblets, the most beautiful place settings. But then the... the... like the... 13th fairy shows up Mm -hmm. and no one was expecting her and they don't have the right place setting for her and she's so offended that she gives a terrible curse to the baby and then goes out in a huff but she's actually always the second to last person to curse to to give the gift to the baby and the last fairy to give the gift to the baby is the one who says softens the curse and says oh she won't die she'll only sleep for a hundred years or she won't sleep for a hundred years she'll only sleep till she's kissed by true love's first kiss
2: oh so this movie was the only instance in which Maleficent herself puts an addendum to the curse saying the kiss can wake her up. Yes. Interesting. Usually, it's someone else putting the addendum on. I have to do. I have to point out that the other gifts that the fairies bestow upon Baby Aurora, because K- is giving the thumbs down, are totally like bullshit gifts, like beauty and grace. How about like intelligence, a conversationalist, curiosity in
1: the world? Like, I, well, depends how many fairies you have to give gifts. <laughs> well, but also like those weren't considered priorities. You That's know, true. they would give. Usually, they were music related, so that they'd give like beauty. Gift of singing, good at playing musical instruments, I like race. those gifts. Those are good gifts. <laughs> like musical Starts talent. Starts our own band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, music is is an important gift, and most of the versions really talk about the actual gifts the fairies gave. They mention that. That didn't make it into this movie, though, unfortunately. Huh. Made into the original, though. They give her the gift, one of them gives her the gift of song. It's just one of the attainments of womanhood that are prized, mm-hmm. or were prized at the time that these tales were written down. Mm-hmm. Can we just also mention the fact that Aurora's mom has, like, no role in the story whatsoever? The queen? She's so unimportant that they don't even explicitly say that she's died. There's a scene where they're like, the queen's the queen wants to see you. They don't think she's going to last the night. And Stefan's like, whatever, I'm busy talking to some wings in a box here. <laughs> and then after that, uh, they don't mention the mother again. Stefan sees Aurora for the first time and says, you look so much like your mother. And then... That's that's that. He doesn't say by the way your your mother's dead. Go get locked in your room now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it's assumed that the mother's dead. We never see her again. They don't mention the fact that she's dead though, and she's so unimportant that it doesn't really seem to matter to anyone, not to her daughter, not to her husband. <laughs> she also has a line in this movie. Yeah. Where she
2: asks Maleficent, "Are you offended that we didn't invite <laughs> you to the uh, <laughs> to the baby christening?"
1: Yeah. Yeah. I get the impression that they only put her in the movie so she could speak that line because that's the line that the queen speaks in the original movie version and then after that they didn't know what to do with her so they like killed her off. They didn't want to mention that they killed her off because (laughs) it's a children's movie so they just like slid it under the rug. What's her origin story, damn it? (laughs) (laughs) I I wish she would have something more to do. Um, Like the idea that like the mom dies off screen from like a broken heart or from childbirth or whatever is so old. Give her something else to do. Yeah.
2: So how do we feel about the fact that Maleficent in the end it's her maternal instincts that end up eh, kinda saving the day? Is is that is that satisfying in a way to see Maleficent as this is powerful villainous slash heroic character that it's like, oh, she's maternal after all, so she's fine or I don't know, I, I feel very conflicted about that.
0: Well, when you put it that way, it definitely sounds <laughs> cheap. But I I don't know, part of me sort of uh, tuck this movie away in my movies for mothers and daughters category, which um, Brave also falls into. Um, my favorite, Jodie Foster, Friday... Um, I keep saying Friday the 13th, but it's Freaky Friday. <laughs> very different um, movies. Yeah, but it's just like these movies that are made... Um, for kids, but are very much to teach them to love their mothers and to, like, appreciate their parents more. That's sort of the vibe that I get from it. I mean, like, ultimately, children's movies are still made by grown-ups, so the messages aren't always quite as entertaining as we might like, but I I found it endearing. I, I know it, it can feel cheap to, like, For a woman to be reduced to, like, a harpy and then mother. But but when they're both in one, I mean, it's like...
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it it was very endearing. I mean, the pivotal moment, uh, the Frozen-esque moment that I mentioned earlier, is that, yes, the true love's kiss that finally wakes Sleeping Beauty from her spell, of course, is a kiss from Maleficent because she has fallen in love with this child. And that is in the vein of Frozen, where you have uh, sisters giving each other true love's kiss, true love's
0: moment, which breaks another evil spell. So it's like the only kind of true love you can find is in family instead of roman- romantic love. Yeah, I and actually I think
1: really like that. It's a great message. It's not just that, it's just that, you know, we have a lot, of, a ton of movies about romantic relationships, and we don't have a lot that sort of do the same thing for friendship that they do for romantic relationships, or for mother-daughter relationships, or for for sibling relationships. In my life, partially because I'm single, my most important relationships are my relationships with my friends and family, and those don't get celebrated in movies a lot, and so seeing them celebrated in a movie. At the same level that romantic relationships are normally celebrated for me, I really enjoy that a lot,
0: yeah, I think if anything, family is often a source of conflict in films mm-hmm. it's you know the, so many dramas are about the drunken family gathering or you know where a parent stay where a parent stands in the way of a romantic relationship for whatever reason. I do think we should mention that. As in Frozen, there is a moment where the prince kisses Aurora, um, and that doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Prince Philip? Prince Philip. um, And what's funny is, well, funny, weird, is that the fairies really sort of force him into kissing her. He's not that interested. He's only met this girl once briefly. And they have a flirtation, but it's...
2: doesn't fall into the fairy tale uh normalcy
0: of oh they met they another in love Mm -hmm. i think it's pretty weird for a person to kiss another person they don't know while she's sleeping
2: yes while she's unconscious (laughs) and it's this non-consensual moment that is also pretty disturbing Mm -hmm. well i think
1: this movie kind of points to the fact that it's disturbing like he's like you want me to kiss her it's like he he wouldn't do it normally but the fairies are just egging him on to do it. He's like, okay, but I still think it's kind of weird. He does it. Nothing happens,
0: and they kick him out.
2: <laughs> it's entirely creepy that moment. Um, but it does, you know, it does build up to the lovely moment between Maleficent and Aurora, where she does kiss mm-hmm. her on the forehead and wakes her up. Can you? I also want Maleficent's
1: lipstick because she—it <laughs> looks amazing. It doesn't rub off when you kiss them. <laughs> yeah, I was
0: sort of waiting for the kiss imprint. <laughs> uh, Sophie, can you tell us a little more
1: about the kiss scene in the original fairy tales? I think this is actually very interesting. Uh, it's something I noticed rereading the fairy tales. To go off a, a slight tangent, in the, a different fairy tale, in the Princess and the Frog, how does the frog turn into a prince? Isn't he cursed? He, right, he, he's cursed to be a frog, right? but he's magically transformed back into a prince. How does that happen? When she kisses him. Do you agree? Yeah. You're both wrong. <laughs> <We're> wrong. <laughs> it is not when she kisses him in the fairy tale. She throws him against a wall. What? Yeah, so in the fairy tale, she's rescued, the frog has rescued her ball, and in exchange, she says she'll let him sit, sit next to her at the table and eat off her plate and lie in her bed. Because, you know, he's like a frog in a swamp. He wants to live a cushy life in the palace. So she tries to ditch him and to go back to break her promise. Because now that she's got her ball back, who cares about this dumb frog? But he (laughs) knocks on the door and her dad makes her let him in and fulfill what she promised. So he has to eat off her plate at dinner. And she's grossed out. This frog's eating off my plate. And then he follows her up to her room and she's getting more and more upset with this stupid frog. And finally he's like, well, I get to sleep in your bed. That's what you promised. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh. Picks him up, throws him against the wall, and he turns into a prince. Is is sleeping in your bed code for like? I don't like, think frog I'm human relations.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately wondering. There's I mean, you've so got
1: a point. There there are fairy tales that involve uh like Beauty and the Beast versions that the Beast doesn't turn human before he marries the beauty. And so there are relations going on there, but I don't think this is necessarily code for sex. Okay. You could, think, you could take it that way, but I—he's not the frog isn't asking her literally to be her lover. He's just saying, let me sleep in your bed. So he just There's wants... There's symbolism okay. there, but it's not, like, literal.
2: He just wants, like, the comforts. Comforts, yeah. Human comforts. Yes.
1: Gotcha. So she throws him against a wall, and he... And he transforms into a prince. So that's the princess and the frog, and we all think of it as a kiss until you actually look at the story again. So likewise, I was looking at the stories, the different versions of Sleeping Beauty, to see how she wakes up in the different ones. So in some of them, she's not cursed by pricking, um, pricking her finger on a spindle. She's cursed by getting a piece of flax stuck in her finger. It's a related thing. You spin flax on a spinning wheel. So it has to do with sewing and textiles either way. Yeah, either way it does. But this, in this case, it's a piece of flax, and she wakes up when the flax is removed from her finger sort of like Snow White wakes up when the apples removed, the poisoned apples removed from her. In the versions where she pricks her finger on a spinning wheel, there's a French version, um, the Perrault's, it's Sleeping Beauty in the Woods, and then there's the German version by the Grimm's, Little Briar Rose, and in Perrault's version, uh, she's cursed to sleep for a hundred years, she does sleep for a hundred years, and after the hundred the years are up, uh, uh, Prince is wandering around and sees the castle and goes through the forest to it, and he kneels at her bedside, and then she wakes up. So he doesn't touch her. She doesn't wake because of the kiss. She wakes because the hundred years are up and her prince is here. And he just happens to be there when she wakes up. Yeah, Okay. he just had good, good timing. <laughs> so wait, aren't there versions where she gets impregnated while sleeping? Yes, there are. <laughs> so those are the versions I've read that where that happens are both the flax versions because what happens is she's asleep, a man comes, and he sees her asleep, and he's overcome with lust and has his way with her. Oh, Yep! In one version, she's sleeping naked. In one version, she's, like, propped up in a chair. and <laughs> so he's like just rape overcome. either way? Yeah, either way. Oh my god. In one of the versions, she knows her rapist, and in another, she does not. So that happens, and she sleeps through it. She sleeps through nine months of pregnancy. She sleeps through childbirth. And then, after she gives birth, the, the child, or one of the children, if she gives birth to twins, sucks the flax out of her finger, and then she wakes up and is, like,
2: happy. Like, how does she react, react So in one of the versions, up? she's
1: really upset because she's lost her virginity, and she doesn't know who took it, and there's this baby, and then a bird steals her baby. But then she realizes that the ring on her finger is the ring of her lover, the the man she knew before she was put into this enchanted sleep, so she- she's a little happier about that, the fact that she oh, knew okay. him. Yeah, yeah, still... I mean, not, not great. She <laughs> still has that baby stole my bird, but okay. And in another version, she's not phased at all. She's delighted. She wakes up, she's like, look, babies, I'm so happy. And she like picks them up and she's super happy. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So
2: you were mentioning earlier how fairy tales were used for different purposes Mm -hmm. to teach, to scare, to, you know, pass off a lesson. For those particular stories, what do you think the goals were? for sharing those stories of these, you know, this, this rape, this pregnancy, this violation, were they seen as having
1: that message or was it spun as some kind of positive thing? I don't think they were seen as a violation. I think, uh, these stories are sometimes categorized as a fruitful sleep because she bears fruit Mm -hmm. while she's asleep. And I think it's the idea that, um, the emphasis isn't, on the violation it's on the fact that she sort of sleeps through the shitty period of puberty <laughs> and wakes up on the other side as an adult woman woman with children and she doesn't have to go through any of that crap and it's mm. the 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 story seem to have the moral like isn't it great good things can come to you while you're sleeping as if she's supposed to be happy that she's slept through childbirth i mean i i think it, it would be nice to sleep through childbirth before the era of modern drugs <laughs> but i mean the male authors of these stories didn't see this as as upsetting a thing as a modern mm. audience would.
0: When When I was watching the cartoon and the film, when she pricks her finger, you see the drop of blood and then we go back to Angelina Jolie where she's like she sort of grabs at her chest and it's just like, it's happened. Um, and to me, that read, oh, she started her period, like, she has become a woman. Mm -hmm. Because it's a pin, I was also thinking of, like, loss of virginity, penetration. So it's like, this woman has lost something, she's transformed, so we must get her a husband, we must get her this prince as soon as possible to, like, cover up, you know, whatever, either pregnancy or, like, to help her move into this next stage of womanhood.
1: Right, which is in you know the traditional fairy tales, marriage and childbirth. What I liked about Maleficent is though for her this transformation isn't about becoming a wife or a mother, it's about becoming a queen. Because after she, she wakes up she's crowned queen of both the human kingdom and the fairy kingdom and it's like she unites them, they're united under her rule. And I think that's a better aspiration for you to have than to want to wake up and get married to a prince. Yeah, and Prince Philip is totally an afterthought in yeah. this movie. Um, he kind he's of like, like on the
2: sidelines. He was so like One y to me. Like <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, did he seem like a boy band? Like, like a floppy like, hair. Yeah, like a flop. Like exactly like a Harry Styles who just sort of like pops up into the woods and he's like, "Oh, you're cute." I did actually think it, the moment that he's introduced in the movie, he kind of comes upon an Aurora sort of alone in the woods kind of with wonder in her eyes and he kind of like sneaks up on her like this woman alone in the woods and And she's alarmed She's for good reason, it was totally creepy to me I mean like she doesn't know who this guy is and what he's going to try to do to her, luckily he is just kind of like taken with her beauty and asks her for directions um, (laughs) one direction (laughs) (laughs) And then later in the movie, he's just sort of, like, standing off to the side while she's being crowned and bowed to by her subjects and friends in the fairy kingdom. And he's just kind of there.
1: Yeah, he's, like, he's literally passed out and being dragged along by Maleficent, (laughs) like, for the ride.
0: Yeah. I sort of see him as, like, an early boyfriend. Maybe she'll move on to, like, the Raven guy or something (laughs) later on when she's older.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a guy who has a deep, deep V-neck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that Raven, the Raven's shirt's just like open all the time.
0: Yeah, I was trying to figure out if he was wearing shirts that were, like, skin-toned or if that was really... Okay. I think,
1: yeah, I think that was supposed to be his skin. He just had weird scarring going on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I would have really liked to see an Angelina Jolie dragon. I like that she was wearing pants at the end. Can I just say that? Like, there's so many dresses throughout it because, you know, fairies. But at the end, she's, like, wearing this skin-tight leather outfit thing and... Pants. Like I don't think any other woman wears pants in this. So I was kind of relieved because they give you so much more. Is she wearing pants when she goes into
1: the castle, or is she wearing? Did the it
0: might be like a cloak around it. Oh. I don't remember seeing them until I feel the like end. I she's
1: sweeping.
0: If anything, I think I was sort of disturbed by the last ten fifteen minutes where, well, like we know that's uh, Stefan violated her earlier in the film but this time he actually attacks her and he like beats her with a chain and like i don't know that's not a metaphor that's a woman getting beat uh, not just by
1: him but by a whole circle of men mm-hmm. it's yeah, and, and it's, they're slamming their shields down on the floor and rhythmically it's, uh, it's creepy it's, yeah yeah
2: it's like a sort of like it's like a ceremonial beating. It was it was also horrifying. I mean, yeah. between that and the non-consensual kissing and the metaphorical rape, I can't believe that this all happened in a PG movie for kids where I mean, th- I mean, I know she ultimately is redeemed and gets her wings back, but it's it's horrifying to watch her have to go through these things. I mean, and there have been interviews with Angelina Jolie and the screenwriter Lindo Wolverton, who also wrote Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, and Homeward Bound. And they're like, yeah, that was a rape scene. It's, I just, I don't know. It was really, it was hard to watch at times and really emotional.
1: I was, I was, I think it was interesting to see it in Maleficent because in the original fairy tale, they also have that scene where her lover has sex with her while she's still asleep. And in a lot of, in the fairy tale versions, a lot of times it's not seen as a trauma. Whereas in the movie, it is clearly a trauma. And she wakes up sobbing and she's, her and Stefan hears her crying out and clearly looks guilty. Like he knows what he did was wrong, but then he goes off with the wings anyway.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe what made it a little more bearable for me in this case is, like, from the very beginning, uh, when we see Maleficent as a young girl, we see that she has a lot of power. She's very smart, strong. Um, When she encounters the young boy... Stefan. She holds him accountable for trying to steal gems from this river. I sort of get the sense that even when terrible things happen to her, like she will overcome because she has this strength from the very beginning. If it had been Sleeping Beauty, Aurora, who was violated, I don't know that I could have handled it because she is so innocent and lacking in depths from the very beginning Yeah, that that sort of corruption just would have destroyed her. Um, so, yeah, moving the violation from... Aurora to Maleficent made it a more empowering story versus like a really painful one. So my question here is, why does
2: Disney keep rehashing these stories over and over when they're so old-fashioned and the morals that they try to teach you and the lessons contained in them are so black and white? They're so good versus evil. They don't have the nuances that we want in our modern progressive world like why retell these stories again and again well i think maleficent was an attempt
0: to do that was to like give a little depth to a character that in the original cartoon was just described as mistress of evil like there must be some motivating force for that and so this film happened Disney does
2: have some more villain origin stories in the works. There's a Cruella movie coming out. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Cinderella. She used
0: to love puppies,
2: but then
1: (laughs) one bit her. Oh, my God. (laughs) See, this is why I don't like villain origin stories. They're not always necessary. Like, Maleficent... I was rewatching Sleeping Beauty. I'm like, okay, she's really blank. We have no idea. She doesn't even have the motivation of Cutlery to motivate her, like the fairy in the original she's Fairy just Tale does. Feeling cranky. She's just cranky, right? But like Cruella de Vil just wants her dog skin coat. That's her motivation. That's not a great motivation, but it's enough of a motivation for a villain. Like, I don't need to know about Cruella's She's like, terrible childhood. very fashionable. With dogs <laughs> and how, but she dislikes them. You know, I don't care about Cruella like there's that. There's one
0: about Medusa, too, right? Medusa
2: is also coming out, the Medusa origin story. And I think there's also some kind of rape
1: involved. Oh,
2: uh. uh, Yeah yeah i don't know if they're totally necessary why not just write us some new stories about some new interesting ladies
1: i would love that or i would love like adaptations of lesser known fairy tales you know i think that there's a lot of fairy tales that have material that you would consider dark and inappropriate for children even though they were once told to children there are some dark ones that we tell like hansel and gretel is super disturbing when you think about it but there are also stories where children are actually killed and eaten by their parents those stories have fallen out of vogue. Did or, you not like the action story of Hansel and Gretel that came out a couple of years ago? <laughs> like Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters? Yeah. I did not watch Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. The, Hansel and Gretel is actually a great story for girls because it's sort of about Gretel coming into her own and taking over. Like By the beginning of the fairy tale, all she does is cry, and by the end, she's the one who helps Hansel get home. So it's sort of like, Gretel really is the hero for me of that story. And there's a, a related story called The Juniper Tree where a little girl, sort of, her actions help save her, her brother. Well, her brother's dead. Her actions help resurrect him. But um, I think that like, them growing up to be witch hunters, to me, is is not as interesting. I feel like that's an attempt to take a story that was originally... To take a story and make it dark when you could make it dark by delving more into to the original story. Like... In Hansel and Gretel, it's their stepmother who sends them into the woods, who, you know, wants their father to get rid of them. And they go into the woods, they defeat the witch, and when they come back, their stepmother has mysteriously died offstage. Her dad's just, the dad's just like, oh, she died. Also, the dad is Is, horrible because he lets his wife talk him into getting rid of their kids. Is that a suggestion that she was maybe the witch? I don't know. They don't explore it, they don't go into any detail, but you could have a lot of fun playing around with the idea that she was the witch or that there was some tie between them. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Disney, Uh, take note. The story of Baba Yaga, I think, is I for Baba Yaga, I, I love. She's this ruch, Russian witch, and she oh, lives why. in a house in the woods on on chicken legs. Yeah, on chicken legs, and she rides around in a mortar and pestle. And uh, there's a story of Vasilia the Beautiful, where a mother, a stepmother, sends her beautiful stepdaughter into the woods to get a light, and she tells her to go get it from Baba Yaga, who she knows is like a child eating witch. So it's like she wants to get rid of her, but Vasilia ends up doing pretty well.
2: (laughs) I mean, and we are hard, we are being hard on Disney because that is what we do, but it's not to say that we don't want Disney to keep attempting to put out uh,
1: empowering female protagonist stories, right? Absolutely. I just don't know that the way to empowering female protagonist stories is by recycling old stories and just like turning the villains into the heroes. Yeah. I I think there's other ways to do it. There are. I mean,
2: Wicked, which you know, it's it's the origin story of the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz,
1: was done really well, I thought. But if you're doing it for everything, it's too much. It's, it is. And especially if doing it for everything, it's like a rape origin story. Like that's we it's we could obnoxious. Use, We can do better.
2: Yeah, we we don't need that many of those in the world, no. especially. I'm just. I'm. Mean, there were so many kids in our theater as we were watching The Leprechaun. And I'm just wondering, like, I'm sure they will be obsessed with this movie in the way that we were obsessed with the movies that we watched as little girls. Like, what are they going to grow up thinking about? What what effect is this movie going to have on them? And when they go home and they play Maleficent with their friends, (laughs)
0: like, just what is that teaching them? I don't know it's yeah, to be know. alert and to not trust men when they give you drinks. I well,
1: yeah, that's kind of a good lesson then. Yeah. I don't, sadly, I'm trying to think if there's anything. I think that uh for some people the moral of sleeping beauty is related to um it's related to puberty, it's related to sort of coming of age, but it's also related to like a little easier way to do that. The idea that if you had the choice to sleep through high school or whatever, (laughs) would you do it? You know, I feel like a lot of characters in movies have been like, oh, high school's so terrible, I wish I could just go to sleep and wake up on the other side. I think that in some ways, the story of Sleeping Beauty and the idea of sleeping through puberty and coming of age is a sort of reaction to that. That time in your life often is really uncomfortable and crappy. And it's like, oh, I'll just skip over that and boom, Prince is there, ready for me to get married and be an adult. (laughs) It's like... That was so easy. I mean, the moral of
2: that, right, is that, yeah, those years suck, but they're the ones that make you who you are. They're the ones that make you interesting, and they're the ones where you figure out who you want to be. So those years are totally necessary, and sleeping through them, no wonder Aurora's the blandest character. She doesn't get those interesting years to make mistakes and
1: have her heart broken.
2: And. No wonder she's the one Disney princess whose name I did not know until like a year
1: ago. Well, one of the things I think is interesting about Sleeping Beauty is there's a lot of nature imagery in that. It's a lot of sex imagery, right? She pricks her finger, the prince penetrates the the thorn hedge. Mm. It's Uh, And then on top of that, there's a lot of plant imagery, right? The castle surrounded by thorns or surrounded by a forest. Her name is Briar Rose or Aurora. Her children are named Sun and Moon or Aurora and Day. So they're basically all hippies. They're all hippies, (laughs) but I find that interesting because I think of it... It makes me think of the tale of Persephone. So Persephone, the, in the myth, uh, Persephone is trapped in the underworld for some months of the year. And during that time, her mother Demeter, who is a goddess of, of the harvest, uh, is in mourning. So that's when we have winter and no crops can be harvested. The whole earth is in do- is dormant because this one woman is dormant, and in a lot of the stories, the castle falls asleep around the Sleeping Beauty, so she falls asleep, everything around her falls asleep, and it doesn't come alive again until she is awakened from her slumber, and I think, it makes me wonder if there is a a, a nature goddess origin story for Sleeping Beauty, if she started Mm -hmm. out as this sort of uh, goddess of, of fertility and, and spring and crops. And I would love someone to dig up in a vault a version of that story because, for me, that's a more fulfilling story because it makes her very powerful and interesting. Well, I
2: think we have set forth um, sort of our hopes for more stories to be delved into, um, whether of fairy tale origin or of not. We are curious to hear what you guys thought of Maleficent. So please visit us on our Facebook page at Bonnie and Maud or on Twitter, um, where our handle is also Bonnie and Maud, And tell us your thoughts. Um, did you like Maleficent? Are there other fairy tales that you would like to see Disney turn into a movie or other villains whose origin stories you have thought about? Um, let us know. You can email us also at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com. Sophie Bushwick has been our lovely guest today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Follow her at Sophie Bushwick. And if you want more fairy tales, you can go visit the back catalog
1: of Tabled Fables,
2: a fabulous podcast.
1: Thank you. We do have a podcast all about sleeping beauty. Awesome.
2: So definitely check that out. Um, Head to iTunes and leave us a review if you would be so kind. Um, We'd love to know what you think, and it also helps others who might be interested in our show find it. Um, For Bonnie and Maude, I've been Eleanor Kagan.
0: And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And do tweet at us to let me know if you also fell asleep during the 1959 Sleeping Beauty. (laughs)
2: Um, and also, as we're going out right now, uh, this is the Lana Del Rey song uh, that ended Maleficent. That was, like, very creepy, but I just love.
0: <laughs>
2: More Lana Del Rey in Disney movies, I say. <laughs> Thanks, Sophie.
1: big your